Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month, we read Instant, the story of Polaroid, which covers the rise, heyday, and eventual decline of Polaroid. It has a particular focus on the personality and management style of Edwin Land, Polaroid's innovative and dynamic founder, who was an inspiration to Steve Jobs. Polaroid's niche in the marketplace and strategic mistakes that led to Polaroid's decline are other major themes of the book. We were pleased to be joined by the book's author, Christopher Bonanos, for an interview about his work. But before we get to Christopher, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager. I'm Kevin Hudak. I'm chief research officer at a commercial real estate research and advisory firm. And I'm David Kopak. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. It's our pleasure to have Christopher Bonanos, the author of Instant, the Story of Polaroid, joining us on the show this month. Christopher is a senior editor at New York Magazine and a highly regarded author. His three books include Instant, which we'll be talking about today, Gods, Heroes, and Philosophers, a Celebration of All Things Greek, and the award-winning Flash, The Making of Ouija the Famous. Christopher, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me here. Great to join you. So I was hoping we could start with a bit of background about you and about what first got you interested in Polaroid. So can you take us back and tell us kind of the genesis of the book? Sure, of course. I was always an amateur photographer, as I still am. I never I never became as good as any pro, I know. But as a teenager, I shot a lot of pictures. I was one of those guys who built a little dark room in the basement and that kind of thing. And I stumbled across a very early Polaroid camera from the 1950s when I was about 13 years old, bought it for three bucks, took it home, figured out how to use it. A couple of calls to Polaroid customer service helped me along there. It was amazing that they would help a child work with a camera that was at the time, you know, well over 20 years old. Uh, but they did. They were still supporting it. They still made film for it. And, you know, I shot more Polaroid pictures then fewer, then more, then fewer. It sort of drifted in and out of my photo-making habits, if you will. And then in 2008, Polaroid announced that they were going to quit making film. And I wanted to write a little story about it. My day job is as a journalist. I work at New York Magazine, and I have been for 28 years, if you can believe that. I really can't. And I wanted to write about the end of Polaroid film. And just right then, there was an art exhibit opening at the Whitney of Robert Maplethorpe's Polaroid work. So I thought, oh, you know, celebration of this uh, strange old medium at the same time that it's going away. So I called a couple of uh, Polaroid enthusiast artists, Chuck Close and a couple other people. And the reaction I got was not sort of elegiac and, oh, it's so sad, this thing is coming to an end, but they were upset. They said, this did not have to happen. This was an amazing company. And they just, they, and they started railing about how it had all gone off the rails. I thought, well, mm -hmm, that's interesting. You know? And I started reading and I went down one of those internet rabbit holes that you and I and everyone we know <laughs> have been down at one time or another. And what I discovered very quickly was that this wasn't sort of an extraordinary corporate saga with an amazing character at its center, Edwin Land, the founder of Polaroid and the inventor of instant photography. And um, over the course of that week, the story I wrote was 350 words long. It was a quarter of a page. But I, I kept going on the subject. And then over the next couple of months, two things happened. One is I kept staying interested. I kept reading. And the second thing that happened was that the publishing economy cratered. This is, you know, 2008, 2009, the crash was, uh, the, was taking place. And I was a, a little concerned that I was going to get laid off. And I pitched a book as a kind of lifeboat, as a second job to have sort of in my back pocket um, in case I got canned. And then I didn't get canned, uh, but somebody agreed to publish the book, um, Princeton Architectural Press, they're called. Uh, which does a lot of books about design and architecture and uh, and the history thereof. So I didn't get fired and I had to write them a book. <laughs> That's really fascinating. I actually, the first camera I ever had was a Polaroid also. So um, I, I took a, a class in seventh grade and they, you know, we each got, you know, I, I actually don't know what model it would have been, but sort of that that classic 
black plastic box. And uh, it was really like a magical moment for me to have that like instant feedback and to, to be able to learn just the basics of photography by, you know, seeing your results so quickly. Mm-hmm. Did you have a particular audience that you were sort of focused on when you were writing this book? Was there someone you were you were looking to share the story with? Not when I started, but as I sort of worked my way through the research and the writing, it developed that there was more than one book here and there were multiple audiences. And I was trying to knit together a bunch of stories to sort of um, to reach them all. Because uh, the way I was thinking about it was that there are four books in here. There's a business story for the sort of, um, you know, tech business reader, if you will, you know, the person who is doing what Edwin Land did, which is uh, dropping out of college, dropping out of Harvard in order to start a tech company in a garage. It's very much a Silicon Valley story, except it was 1932 instead of 1982. (laughs) Then there was a fine arts story because so many fine artists over the years fell into what many of us think of as a snapshot medium and was not really restricted to that. Ansel Adams shot many of his most famous photographs on Polaroid film. Chuck Close, as we said, used a a very large format Polaroid camera to to make a lot of his work. Andy Warhol carried a Polaroid camera everywhere he went. There are thousands upon thousands of Warhol Polaroids of famous people, of parties, of all sorts of things. So there was a tech story, there was an art story. Uh, The third one is a pop culture story. Everybody who grew up with a Polaroid camera, you know, has, has memories of like birthday parties and graduations and things like that. So, you know, my point is that there are multiple books within the, within the one book. And telling all those stories was the sort of challenge as a writer, but also fun as a writer, kind of knitting these together and, you know, making it all, uh, making it all hang together as a cohesive narrative. Excellent. Thanks for that background, too. I particularly appreciated that, Chris. You know, at different points, I remember that you have one line in the book uh, where you essentially say this was a startup culture, right? That's Silicon Valley right there, if I remember correctly, is one line you used after uh, describing the organization. And then at one point, too, there's almost like an alternate history port where what if Edwin Land had still been around with the company in the early 80s? You know, would he have figured out that with better compression on the data, you could you know, essentially turn what would be a digital camera into America online and transmit data over a phone. You know, I loved some of those little vignettes and uh, anecdotes that you were relating as well. But in order to form this book, you obviously had to speak to a number of folks, do some deep research. You know, I was just wondering, Chris, who were the key sources? What were the key sources? I know you did conduct interviews with several of the Polaroid executives, but was it hard to get access to some of these folks just given the lifespan of the company? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting that I this I was doing most of my research in 2010 and 2011. And, you know, the, the glory days at Polaroid were basically the 70s and or, uh, 60s through the 80s, let's say. There was a lot of growth before that. But really, the 60s through the um, early 80s were when it was at its sort of creative and also financial peak. And that, therefore, you know, a lot of the people who work there are older now but they were still around. And whenever I reached out to one of them, I got one of two reactions. One was reticence because Polaroid was so dependent on its patenting and its corporate, its uh, proprietary formulas and marketing and chemistry that they didn't really like to talk to outsiders. And even though the old Polaroid had gone bankrupt and was dead, there was still a sort of habitual unease about revealing too much. That was a few people. Most of them, though, were dying to talk about it because they felt like this had been one of the great sagas of invention of the 20th centuries, they felt, and I happen to agree with them. <laughs> and they, were, they really, really wanted it down on paper. They wanted their story told. And so it was, it was often the opposite of difficult. They were really eager to talk to me. And a couple of times, people who had been reticent at the beginning called their old friends who had already talked to me and sort of got the green light. It's like, no, no, he wants to write the story that we care about, which is not to say that I was utterly uncritical about this company. You know, they made mistakes and I talked about them, but they began to understand some of the people who were reticent at the beginning that I was taking them seriously. I was not looking to write some sort of, you know, weird gossip book or takedown or anything. Secondarily, 
Polaroid, which had been in its day very, very almost compulsive about patenting, they, they really, you know, held on to everything very, very closely and very, very tightly. They saved every scrap of paper, and I mean every scrap of paper, millions and millions of pages. It was all in one corporate archive. In 2003, they gave it all to the Harvard Business School Library. And in 2010, the first tranche of it, cataloged, came open to researchers. So I was in the door <laughs> as soon as they opened it. Um, they're still cataloging, mind you. It's a 30-year project. It's millions of pages. But the stuff they did first was the patent files and the PR department. And that was excellent for anyone who wants to write a book about Polaroid, because you get to look at the tech and you get to look at how it was sold. Um, and I looked at a whole lot of good stuff. <laughs> No, and thank you for the insights on your process. We had actually recently read Liftoff by Eric Berger, uh, the story of Elon Musk in the early days of SpaceX. And it's interesting. There's some parallels there, uh, both in the process, uh, folks that were eager to talk to him, just as you uh, met some Polaroidians who were eager to talk to you as well. But also there's some strains of that DNA, of that land DNA that I think run through folks like Musk. Uh, even when you look at Steve Jobs, obviously Steve Jobs uh, had a relationship with land that we can discuss later. But no, thank you for those insights. I'd like to go back now to the story a bit. And let's really get into Edwin Land, really a remarkable man, definitely worthy of many accolades. Could you tell us a bit about how he got started, how he ended up starting Polaroid? And as we get into Polaroid, what were their first products before they got into instant photography? Yeah, as I said, he was... Um he was a Harvard dropout who wanted to capitalize his first invention, which was unrelated to instant photography, except in the most peripheral ways. His first product, his first invention, I should say, was the sheet polarizer. A polarizer, if you're, if you're, anybody who knows anything about optics will, will leapfrog me here, but it's a, basically a light filter that, uh, it's a little hard to describe without a diagram, but when you shine a light through it, it sort of orients all the rays of light in one plane. And that means if you place two of them over one another, they're sort of like, uh, it's sort of like a Venetian blind. All the light coming through is in one, you know, sort of in rays of one dimension. If you put a second blind in front of that, you don't block any of the light if the slats are aligned. But if you turn the second one 90 degrees, you block all the light. And what this means is if you take two polarizing filters, and mount them so that they can be rotated, what you've got is a valve for light. And this turns out to have any number of commercial applications. And it had been done before with like vials of fluid that you can shine a bolt of light through, but it had never been done with a plastic sheet filter that was, you know, sort of dry and easy to handle and that you could just like plop in front of whether it was a camera lens or a light source or something like that. Um, you couldn't carry it in your pocket until then. And as I said, there were all sorts of commercial applications for this. They, they use it a lot in um, optical settings, especially during the Second World War. You know, it, it had applications in things like bomb sites, gun sites, uh, pilots' goggles, and most of all, polarized sunglasses, which are sold to this day. So commercializing that was kind of the first project at uh, Polaroid. And it grew very fast. It did very well, but it sort of hit the ceiling because it was not a consumer product. It was a, it was a kind of a licensing operation. You know, they would make this filter and then they would ship it off or they would contract with the company that made sunglasses to apply it as a, as a coating on their sunglasses lenses. So, you know, it sort of had a little bit of a ceiling until the war broke out. And then the um, Department of Defense, Department of War back then, would started buying it like crazy. And the company grew during the war. I think it grew to 1200 employees. You know, they were really roaring along. Land was really a little unusual in that he was the entrepreneur business mind of the place, but he was also the inventor of the thing. As I am fond of saying, he was the Steve Jobs of Apple, but he was also the Steve Wozniak of Apple, the guy who built the Apple II down in his garage with a soldering iron and engineer the, the motherboard and place the chips. The big thing for Land was that he was a scientist. He would, he would always have chosen a day in the lab at, as an experimenter over any sort of like corporate growth strategy meeting, <laughs> as we would say today. He was a scientist first and a businessman second, although he was quite good at the latter as well. 
And how did Polaroid transition into instant photography? Um, and for for listeners who might not be familiar with Polaroid, could you could you tell us a little bit about their their most influential products? Sure, of course. So during the war, the, as I said, the company grew sixfold, and at the end of the war, or toward the end of the war, it was evident that they were going to stop having all those contracts with the War Department, and. Uh, Land was going to have to contract again, and he felt very responsible. You know, he'd built this very large company with a lot of employees, and suddenly he was going to have to lay them off or something. And he was sort of casting about for the way to continue growing, or at least staying grown, so to speak. And in late 1943, which is not at the end of the war, obviously, but when people were starting to see D-Day and whatever was going to come after in sight, he was on vacation in the Southwest at a resort with his family. And this is this is the great, uh, as he once said, our apocryphal true story. <laughs> he was taking pictures of his daughter, who was three at the time, Jennifer Land. And what he said, she said to him was, why can't I see the picture now? And Land's sort of chemist, physics, inventor brain kicked into overdrive. And he said, well, how would you do that? And the story goes, he sent off Jennifer to be with her mother for a while. <laughs> And he strolled around the resort for the next three hours into the night, trying to figure it out. And he said, well, what would you do? You'd have a positive and a negative, and you'd have a way to sort of distribute developer reagent between them. And he, he, he kind of worked out, the rough, roughed out the system within a few hours. And by weird coincidence, there was another guy at the resort who happened to be his lawyer his patent lawyer. And he went over to the guy's room and dictated a disclosure. <laughs> he, and he said, I had this idea. And they laid it down on paper and signed a date. And over the next, let's say, year, he dedicated a small team at Polaroid to fleshing it out. And now one of Polaroid's projects during the war had been this thing called a vectograph, which was a system of making 3D aerial photographs from a plane using polarizing filters. And it involved, in part, sort of squeezing uh, uh, layers of film between a pair of rollers to sort of lay down uh, the, the, the polarizing filter in differing thicknesses. I'm, I'm oversimplifying here. It was much more complicated than that. But roughly speaking, an aspect of that, which was using rollers to sort of uh, squeeze material between a positive and a negative, filtered into the new system. The whole thing was kept secret, except from this tiny little team in the Polaroid laboratories up in Cambridge, Mass., which eventually grew into a larger and larger portion of the company. First product that was revealed was at a technical conference in 1947 in New York City, in the Hotel Pennsylvania, right across from Penn Station. And he did a demo for the scientists, but it was also a demo for the press. And this is an important thing about Land, which is that whenever he had a product to show off, whether it was the early polarizing filter or the first Polaroid camera or the later iterations of the Polaroid camera, what he was fabulous at was doing a demonstration with flair and pizzazz. And what he did was simply set up an 8x10 camera, large format camera, with a processing rig that had been custom built next to it. And he made a portrait of himself on early Polaroid film using the system that was to be commercialized a short time thereafter. And the great thing is there's a picture of him revealing the picture of himself. And because it was shot on large format film fairly close in, the picture of his face is exactly the size of his face. And a picture of him doing this made it into the New York Times the next day. In fact, there are two stories in the Times about it, because there's a news story about this wild product that is being revealed, and there's an editorial saying this thing was revealed at the American Optical Society Convention, and there has been nothing like this in the history of photography. And it turned out to be correct. Thing came on the market a year later, year and a half later, to extreme enthusiasm in the marketplace. Sold like gangbusters right from the beginning. <laughs> And what was it like using a Polaroid instant camera compared to like other options for people at the time? Well, you got to remember that if you took pictures in 1948, you were used to either dropping your film at the corner Photoshop and getting your pictures back a week later. And, you know, that's okay in some circumstances, but especially when you're an amateur, you know, the cameras at that time did not have autofocus. They did not have even built-in light meters most of the time. So basically, you were guessing how to judge exposure and aperture and shutter speed. 
it was a little bit of a crapshoot when you were learning because what you'd do would you be you'd take your picture, you'd send it off, it would come back a week later. Your memory of how you did what you did was basically gone. And if your pictures were unsatisfying, if they were all blown out and overexposed or blank <laughs> or, you know, just just bad, you couldn't connect them to your actions on the day you'd taken them. And secondarily, your pictures of your kid's birthday party were gone forever. And suddenly you had this thing where you could see them in 90 seconds or 60 seconds, or once the film got better a few years later, 15 seconds. You know, it was it was revolutionary in the way that like a lot of sort of things were changing in the years after World War II to really sort of speed things up and ease them into your everyday life. You know, I'm fond of saying everything got faster in the 1940s, you know? You went from going to the movies to watching television in a lot of cases. You know, suddenly you had pictures instantly beamed into your house. The first microwave oven appeared that same year. You know, you could suddenly cook your potato in two minutes instead of 20. <laughs> um, stuff started getting faster in a hurry, and Polaroid was part of that. And how did the Polaroid instant cameras work, and sort of how did that, that change over time? Okay, strap in tight. Here comes the technological explanation. <laughs> the earlier Polaroid cameras and the later ones all depend on one key invention. It's called the pod. It's a little rectangular sack of developer fluid. It's actually a paste. And it is engineered so that the, the one edge closer to the photo will burst under pressure. This The pod is, by the way, contained within the white tab that is at the bottom of a, of a more modern Polaroid picture. You know, everybody recognizes a Polaroid, right? Because it has the white frame and the fat border at the bottom. The fat border is functional. It has a, it has a little sack in it of this uh, developer paste. So you take your picture. In the earlier films, it exposes a, convention, a more or less conventional negative. And you yanked a tab out of the camera, and that negative was suddenly placed face-to-face -face with a sheet of positive. That was the paper, photo paper, the print on which you would see your image. Between the two lies this little sack of developer at the bottom of the pod. You yank the tab out, and it comes out of the camera between a pair of rollers that break the pod open and spread the paste between the positive and negative. And then uh, I, w I won't get into too much technological detail because it'll take too long and it'll, it, it's very hard to do, again, without a diagram, although it's actually very easy to understand when you see it happening. But broadly speaking, what happens is the, the negative starts to process and the positive print is created by the waste material that is uh, filtered out of the negative that would normally go down the drain when you're uh, rinsing it out in a dark room. It's a, it's a sort of inventive technological and chemical trick. It's even more complicated in color, <laughs> which came along later, but that's roughly how it works in the black and white. In the more familiar uh, modern Polaroid system, there's an additional aspect because there aren't a positive and negative that have to be peeled apart once it comes out of the camera. It comes out in one piece, and what happens is there is a chemical cover that appears over the image. Uh, it's, the term is opacifier. It blanks out the image while the whole thing develops under it. And then three or four minutes later, it fades away into nothingness. It is insanely complicated, that particular system. I have never been able to exactly get my head around the fine details of it. Uh, it's been explained to me by old Polaroid chemists, and they are amazingly lucid about it. But it's still sort of like... I, I, I kind of get this. It has also been said that it is one of the most complicated industrial products ever produced in volume in the United States or in the world, really, you know, that you can make a, make a, a, a piece of film to do this that costs like, you know, a buck is, is kind of extraordinary. And if you think about it, Polaroid, for most of its life, did not have competitors. They patented all this stuff and they locked it up. But was also because it was so fiendishly difficult to make, uh, especially in volume, especially consistently. They had such a head start on everybody that uh, with one major exception, nobody else really got into the game. There's a funny detail that the Soviets tried it too. They had a camera called the Moment. It was a complete ripoff of Polaroid. And the camera itself was pretty good because the Soviets were good at lenses and you know small mechanical stuff. They could make cameras. They knew how to make cameras. And the you know, they could make a pair of rollers the same as Polaroid could, you know. They couldn't really make the film. It was garbage. And um, 
was also too expensive for Soviet consumers anyway. <laughs> Chris, so your book is filled with some fun and interesting facts and, and nuggets that I really wouldn't have known otherwise, whether it was the fact that at one point Polaroid had 87% of its revenue coming from the military and government contracts like you touched on earlier. Uh, even some of the the workings of the film, like you were just explaining, you know, even that some of the film packs came with batteries. Uh, that was a necessity of some of the Polaroid models. One thing I didn't realize before, though, was that Polaroid was actually an early pioneer in the hiring of women scientists. I was wondering, how did that become a human resources focus at the company? And what were some of the, the benefits and dynamics that arose uh, from that early focus on women scientists and leaders at the company? Yeah, that that was all land. And it was, I think, principally because he uh, liked women. I don't mean that in a in a skeezy way. He was, unlike a lot of men of his generation, comfortable talking to women, intelligent women. And I think he also was canny about it. To be blunt about it, if all his competitors were only hiring graduates of schools that were male-only, like Harvard and MIT, and he could go over to Smith and get people who were just as smart, who were not being scooped up by... General Motors and IBM and uh, uh, General Electric and whoever else, and offer them more interesting work. What he could do was sort of go around the the competition and get you know get super smart people without so much of a fight. And very often, what he did was make his own scientists. He had a friend at Smith College, an art history professor named Clarence Kennedy. Clarence Kennedy, in fact, is the man who uh, cooked up the word Polaroid for land one night. He would every year send the person he designated to be his smartest graduate over to land for a job interview. And over and over, there was this uh, sort of path for very, very smart Smith College women who had studied art history. And land would send them for a few chemistry classes at night, or sometimes they had taken some chemistry classes. You know, they might go to, you know, a few graduate classes over at MIT or wherever they could. And he would he would make his own chemists out of art historians, which when you run a photography company and you want people who are not just able to do the chemistry, but also have to think about, you know, quality of light and quality of color and, and vibrancy of color when you're developing a, a product that is supposed to make beautiful pictures, had an extra, an extra sort of benefit. He, he liked people who were not just brains, but were interesting as well. You know, he, one of his best chemists, a woman named Maureen Morse, was um, a young woman. I think she had been one of the Smith students, although I'd have to double check that. But she also, like, on the side, she played the harp. She was a concert-quality harpist. And, you know, you don't see that every day. <laughs> and I think he liked that kind of polymath person who was intellectually interesting and could, could, um, could keep up. Well, coming from a liberal arts school, I certainly appreciated that section. <laughs> Don't we all? Could you go into the the research and development at Polaroid? I, I know some of these breakthroughs took really long times, and you know they were, they were doing a lot of like fundamental science in order to to make these products. So, could you go go through that process? Sure, it's really true too. Polaroid spent an inordinate amount of energy and money on basic science, and Land banged the drum for this incessantly. And in fact, it it often was sort of a uh, a sticking point with some of his investors because they said, you know, you should be spending more money on product development on things that are definitely going to pan out. Why are you spending all this money on basic research? And his answer was that it eventually would sort of pay off. It was just a longer term play. And, you know, for a long time, he proved them right. The labs at Polaroid had all sorts of like side products, the projects going on things that were just interesting to land and might bear fruit someday. And the thing is, every few years, one of them kicked out something that was commercial, commercializable and, you know, brought in a billion dollars or so. The example is going for black and white film to color. In about 1950, once the black and white, or really the earliest films were brown and white, they were kind of sepia, it didn't look so great. Once the black and white films were on the market and doing well, Land told one of his associates, a guy named Howie Rogers, you know, I want you to start working on color. And Rogers went away to his lab and basically figured out how to do it, a way to do it, and came back to land two years later and said, okay, I'm ready to start. 
And Len was very proud. He told this story all the time. And he said, I want you to understand what kind of an organization Polaroid is. We paid a man to sit and think for two years. <laughs> and then came the development of, of, uh, of that product. It's always funny to say development when you're talking about film because it sounds like something entirely different. The, the maturation, let's say, of that product. Polaroid Color Film arrived on the market in 1962. It took that long. It took a dozen years to get it out into the world. It was um, a tremendous slow build. But of course, you knew that Polaroid had to do that. They had to eventually have a color film because the world was going from black and white to color in, in the, the whole photography world, not just, not just amateur work, but everything. And uh, they had to get there, so they got there. And they, he wanted it to be done right, and he wanted it to be beautiful, and he wanted it to be, you know, easy to use, which eventually it was. But that long, slow build out of the labs that had all sorts of wild research projects going, it was not unique at the time, but it was, it was already rare then, and now it's even rarer because people don't want to spend that kind of money on anything that isn't product-oriented anymore. A few companies still do it. The big auto companies few others, probably Google. <laughs> they don't tell us, but one gets the sense that they do that. But there's, um, there's less of a culture of that than there used to be, I think. So Chris, a discussion of photography and film uh, can't be complete without mentioning one of the other big players, Kodak, obviously. And just like you mentioned that your book has four different books or segments within it, the relationship between Polaroid and Kodak certainly had a few different inflection points and segments. Uh, tell us a little bit about the relationship between Polaroid and Kodak. Sure did have a, a take a number of turns. At the beginning, Kodak was uh, probably, uh, they, they didn't care about Polaroid in any meaningful way, except as a, um, a customer for some of its uh, industrial products, because they thought this instant photography thing was like a, a, you know, a curio. It wasn't to be taken seriously. And that stayed true for a long time. Kodak, for many years, was the supplier of the negative component that went into Polaroid film, including after color was developed. They, um, they, they were happy to supply it. They said, you know, they're, they're a little bit of a competitor in the consumer market. This was a little later, once Polaroid got bigger. They said they're a little bit of a competitor in the consumer market, but really, you know, they're a good customer, and we have a longstanding relationship with them, and that's fine. As the 60s wore on and Polaroid photography got bigger and bigger, there was a feeling developing at Kodak that perhaps we have enabled a real competitor and perhaps this isn't the greatest idea. So in the late 60s, Kodak gave notice to Polaroid that they were going to cut them off. They were going to stop making their negative components. And Polaroid had to build its own factory, which they did at tremendous cost at, and with a great deal of pride that they could now sort of go it alone. They were a mature company, not dependent on an industrial behemoth, you know, 10 or 20 times their size. It turns out Kodak had another plan, which was that it was not only cutting off this competitor, but it was actually going to compete with it. Because starting in the late 60s, Kodak launched a plan to introduce their own instant cameras. This was the one major competitor I talked about earlier. In 1976, they brought it to market. It competed directly with the SX70 camera, which was the first of the sort of modern cameras with the white tab that I was talking about earlier, which had been introduced four years earlier by Polaroid and was absolutely burning up the tech world as like the, the, the grooviest thing you could possibly receive as a Christmas present. You know, it was like the first iPhone or something. You just, if you were a tech person anywhere near photography, you had to have this thing. 76 Kodak introduces its competition products the EK-4 and the EK-8, they were called. And they used a proprietary film cartridge, didn't match Polaroids, slightly different method of exposing through the other side of the film. And they had determined that they had dodged and weaved and ducked their way around Polaroids patents to make a print that looked about the same, but was uh, proprietary enough that they wouldn't get in trouble. And Polaroid got a camera, they took it apart, Land was irritated at how uninnovative it was next to the SX-70, and 10 days later, Polaroid sued Kodak. The case went through the legal system for 14 and a half years. It was immense. The number, the battalions of lawyers deployed on both sides were extraordinary. And I was lucky enough when working on this book to interview the, the chief counsel on both sides. The um, 14 and a half years in court led to, finally, 
a damages award, Polaroid won. Kodak had to pay just short of a billion dollars in damages. And these are 1980s dollars, not, uh, or I guess the early 90s it was 91, I think, when it came down. Early 90s dollars. So that's, you know, you'd have to add a couple of times to, uh, you'd have to multiply that by a couple of times now. But it was also a billion dollars, and Polaroid had thought they were going to get triple damages, which would have been more like, you know, $4 billion, $8 billion, $12 billion. There was a feeling in the marketplace that although Polaroid had won, it was perhaps less of a victory than they thought. That said, it was a great humiliation for Eastman Kodak. They actually, not only did they have to pay just shy of a billion dollars to Polaroid directly, there was also a subsequent class action lawsuit among everybody who'd bought their cameras because the terms of the judgment were that they had to stop making cameras and film. Kodak did in this space. So they actually, because they could no longer supply cameras and uh, film to the people who'd already bought cameras, they had to buy all those cameras back. If you had bought a Kodak instant camera anytime in the previous 15 years, you got a letter from Kodak saying, we will give you $50 for it or two shares of Kodak stock. <laughs> well, that's incredible to think about. And, and thank you for the answer there. Uh, and, you know, really it comes down to what I saw and what I enjoyed in your book was this almost cinematic quality at times. And particularly between Kodak and Polaroid, it was this David and Goliath uh, battle almost in the beginning and how that evolved. And I just loved it. The end of one of the chapters, there was this moment, again, almost cinematic in quality, where it was a Kodak scientist who was working on or an engineer working on magnetic film that could be translated to the television and mm -hmm. it was almost like a, if only they knew, <laughs> moment in the book that I, that I just enjoyed very much. Speaking of exciting new technologies, one revelation for me in the book was about how Polaroid was actually working on digital photography as early as the 1980s. I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about why that didn't work out, why they didn't pursue that all the way. Why didn't they become the big digital camera name of the 1990s? That is an excellent question, and it is the most frustrating thing to look at in hindsight. And of course, these things are harder at the time. So, you know, you can't exactly like dump blame on any one person. But here's the thing about Polaroid. By the 1980s, they were making their own components they had their own factories. They were a sort of self-contained operation. They made their own cameras. They made their own film. They made their own film components. They had also placed virtually all their eggs in that basket. Their money came from selling film for the cameras they manufactured. The cameras were a little bit of a profit center, but not really, because you sold them once. The film was sold forever. As, as they teach in business school, the razor and blade model that Gillette pioneered, um, where you buy the handle once and the blades forever, applied very much to Polaroid film. And so anything in their business model that was not, anything in their business that did not lead to selling more film was considered maybe not, you know, their prime, their prime focus. And this idea of the, and this was actually the term used at the time, the filmless camera came along in the early 80s. And they all knew it was going somewhere. And they were at once, of the opinion that they should pursue it. And in fact, those basic research labs did all sorts of research into, you know, charge couple devices and chips that could be uh, at the back of every digital camera. And at the same time, they were terrified of it because they said, well, where's the, where's the, how do we do this? We're, we're a consumer products company. We sell film. <laughs> what are we going to do? So they had this like crazy stop start approach to it, which is, you know, when you look back at it, it's just maddening because they, they knew what they were up against, but they had this sort of pervasive idea in the company that, well, well we, have to, we have to make our money that way because that's, that's all we are. And so they said, well, you know, we're going to just keep trying to get our costs down. We'll get our costs down from, you know, 50 cents to make a frame of film to 25 or something, and maybe it'll be okay. And no one looked them straight in the eye and said, in five years, it's going to cost nothing to take a photograph once you buy a camera, because it will just be a bunch of ones and zeros. Um, there, there's a saying out on the internet that is often attributed to land. I don't think he said it. It was, somebody is going to make your product obsolete. Make sure it's you. <laughs> and his successors at Polaroid, after he left the company in 1982, maybe understood that to some degree, but only fitfully. 
and they sort of made this forward and back, forward and back, stop, start approach to digital photography. The other simple problem is that the digital photography revolution, even though they knew it was coming, even though they were sort of preparing for it by the time it did come, no one was prepared for the speed with which it slammed in. Everybody went from film to digital really in the space of about five years. In the early 90s, photography was a film universe. By the late 90s, photography was clearly a digital universe. And the speed of that really clobbered them, as it did Eastman Kodak as well, which had even more uh, time to get up to speed because they invented the digital camera in 1975. Everybody was a little taken aback by how fast it happened, and Polaroid was not equipped for that. There was another sort of key failure that you discussed in the book, which was the the video camera, Polavision, that they attempted. Could you tell us a little bit about that product and, and why it didn't take off? Yeah, that was a land hobby horse. Started in the 60s and introduced in 1977. Uh, it was an 8-millimeter camera, a movie camera, where the cartridge of film developed automatically. You popped it out of the camera and you put it in this player that looked like a TV with a slot on top. And it would rewind. And in the 90 seconds of rewinding, the film would develop. There was actually a tiny version of the pod in the film cartridge. And it would develop and you could play it back immediately. And it turned out to, it, it turned out to be a, a klutzy thing to use because you had to be next to the player. And the film was relatively low, uh, had relatively li low light sensitivity. So you had to shoot with giant lights, you know, and so all the home movies was, were of people squinting, you know. It just, it didn't have the sort of magic trick quality of a photograph that develops while sitting in your hand in 90 seconds. It was, it was a great technological trick if you knew the technology, but it did not slot into sort of social habits the way taking a party picture with a Polaroid camera does. It forced you to sort of conform to the to the object, to the to the medium, if you will, and uh, it just it just didn't sell. And Land had pushed it through, pushed it through, pushed it through, and everybody said, oh, not, "I don't know, this doesn't seem like a natural thing." And he loved it, he wanted it, he wanted it, and they just people didn't buy him. They took a huge write down in the late seventies of the of the costs to develop it, which another one that's another one that had been running for fifteen years throughout the company. Gorgeous, gorgeous technology. You know, it's film that had red, blue, green dyes in it, you know, 3,000 lines to the inch. It was just amazing to make, amazing to, amazing to invent. But it had a sort of fatal flaw, which is that just people didn't want to take pictures that way. Ultimately, this is a podcast about business books and, and business learnings, right? And I really thought that in your book, uh, one of those four dimensions is definitely business. Those business learnings tend to accelerate in the second half as Polaroid starts facing a number of different challenges. And one of those was the leadership transition when Edwin Land ultimately retired. Could you tell us a little bit about how Polaroid handled that? Where were there some positives? Where were there some potential negatives in that leadership transition? And how did that ultimately impact the future of the company? Um, yeah, Land didn't want to give it up. He, he wanted to be there forever. And after the Polavision debacle, there was pressure on him for the first time. You know, for the first time, he had insisted on something, pushed it through despite his colleagues' uh, reticence, as he had done many times before, to resounding success. This time, he had done it, and it bombed. And people started for the first time saying, you know, his ego's got the better of him, the old man's lost his touch, whatever the, whatever. But he was also still such a godlike figure at this company that he founded, and that, you know, at that time had 20,000 employees. And there was sort of a, a belief that he was still the smartest one in the room. He was, you know, he couldn't be fired. He owned too much of the company and he was on the board and he had loyalists on the board. But he agreed after the Polvision mess to cede some control to one of his deputies who took over as CEO. And then in the early 80s, he stepped back a little further. You know, he was getting old and he wanted to work more on his science. So they made him. The term now would be chief technology officer, I guess. I don't know. I think he was called chief scientist at the time. He stayed at the company in sort of his own lab, allowed to do basically what he wanted. And that worked for a while, but he still sort of chafed at being controlled, you know? And ultimately, he wanted to pursue a big, expensive project in the early 80s, and the, his, the, the CEO didn't go for it. And Lance said, well, fund it or I'll quit. And he didn't fund it, and he quit. 
1982, he stepped away from Polaroid for good. His successor, his first successor, was a guy named Bill McCune, who had been at Polaroid since the 1930s, was an engineer and a scientist, a, a man who was pretty brilliant. And in fact, he was better at some aspects of being the boss than Land had been, you know, because <laughs> one of the old Polaroid folks I interviewed said to me once that his job was principally hanging onto Land's legs so he didn't float off into space. <laughs> you know, so his wildest flights of fancy could be curbed a little bit. And then his successor was another Polaroid lifer, a guy named Mac Booth, um, who had really been a production engineering kind of genius. He had gotten the plants up and going, uh, particularly to make negatives. And, you know, what what basically started to happen was that the the innovation engine that Land had built that was sort of urgent and and always tried the nearly impossible things started to cool off a little in favor of sort of like maintaining what they had. And that might have been fine at other times. It was not fine when the digital revolution was about to slam in on them. It was right at that point that they needed the brilliant young they needed the younger version of Edmund Land, and uh, they didn't have him. Or if they had him in the room somewhere, they weren't listening to him. And that's when the sort of long, slow slide started to take place. The truth is, though, that Land bears some responsibility for this, too. He didn't want to let go. He didn't want to retire. He didn't want anyone to succeed him. There was, a, there was an interview where he once, somebody asked him about who, who comes next after you in the 1970s. And he started listing off these just, impossible set of qualities that you could never possibly find in one person. And it got to the point where the interviewer was starting to laugh. And then even Land started to laugh. And he said, yeah, we're making him down in the lab. <laughs> That's a fantastic anecdote. And, uh, you know, I also thought it was interesting, you know, with McCune, if Land had sort of picked him, which I assume had happened as the successor, yes. uh, McCune had originally come in as quality control and actually helped sort of rescue the quality uh, of the SX-70 when it first came out, right? When they had, um, you know, some of the, the photo packs were being sent that were faulty. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine Land must have thought if someone can do this, it could hopefully be the person who is focused on quality control, can keep the ship afloat. You know, but in the end, as you mentioned, that's when the kind of decline started. And I thought it was one of those cinematic moments again when McCune decided to take the leather side off the SX-70, which had been more of a Land aesthetic thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. He wanted. To, he started to offer cheaper models that were covered in yeah. vinyl instead of land, because uh, instead of leather, as Land had insisted, because uh, it had been a you know a, a huge production headache to use a natural material instead of um, a synthetic. Just one, one of those small um, symbolic elements. Yeah, exactly. You know, Land's line had been: "This camera deserves leather." <laughs> What does that mean? That, that is incredible. And, you know, before we talk more about the decline, I did want to ask, you know, we're already kind of in that conversation about differentiators and what land, what Polaroid included in their camera that, that differentiated them from their competitors or just in general, their process, uh, their brand. How were they different from competitors uh, and how did that feed into their success? Well, as I said, they had a, a whole product universe open to themselves, apart from the, the years where they were fighting it off, fighting it out with Kodak. Nobody had a picture you could see right away. That's it. End of story. You know, it was as if there were one cell phone manufacturer or something. Uh, you know, they were the only game in town. And that meant that the profit margins could be whatever they said they were. And in fact, the profit margin on a pack of Polaroid film in the good years was 60%. So, you know, you could spend a lot of money on R&D when you had that coming in at the rate of a billion photos a year, which it indeed was 100 million packs it was a lot of money they had sort of ancillary businesses too that you don't think of you know we're all focused on the polaroid pictures we know from birthday parties whatever but they had for example a a whole division devoted to industrial uses they had driver's license bureaus all shot their pictures on polaroid film the peel apart stuff earlier and you mentioned dentists as well that was a surprise for me I, that's right they had a huge business in dentists offices you could buy a special polaroid camera it, it had two handles on the side and it was it was big it was much bigger than the ones you and i grew up with two handles on the side and a flash and it focused down very close and so you could take pictures of before and after dental work from about five inches away, something like that. Um, and, it, you know, you, you, it only focused at that distance. <laughs> it was a very specialized camera. But 
dentist offices would order the film by the case. You know? And if you're, again, if you're in the business of selling film more than the business of selling cameras, that is a fabulous, fabulous recurring business. When, when the consumer market started to crater in the 90s, the industrial division kept Polaroid afloat and solvent uh, in those late years till the bitter end, till, till it didn't, uh, till that business started to peel away. It wasn't just dentists either. You know, oscilloscopes had Polaroid cameras mounted on them. There were special mounts for microscopes that were used in like, you know, chemistry labs and biology labs. There were all sorts of sort of specialty things, uh, crystallography, x-ray crystallography cameras, all sorts of stuff. So in addition to those ancillary businesses, it does seem like one of the biggest differentiators was that early IP protection strategy that they had. And that it makes sense then why they went so hard after Kodak uh, to protect that, to show others that if you do steal our intellectual property, we will wage war for 14 years. That is exactly true. Um, Land said it in a speech to his shareholders once. He was, he was personally outraged that Kodak, with all its resources, with all its greater wealth and a uh, number of smart people, would stoop to sort of a, a cheap knockoff of the Polaroid system as he saw it. He said something to the effect of that, you know, they have, they have everything in the world with all the resources, this is the best they could do. All we have is our brilliance. <laughs> That's really interesting. That reminds me a bit of Apple versus Microsoft and how they were originally actually collaborators who became competitors and then became collaborators again. But you know, thinking actually about Apple, I, I wanted to ask you about Steve Jobs because there's clearly this admiration of Edwin Land from Steve Jobs. And you wrote about that a little bit in the book, but I was wondering if you go into more detail about the relationship between Steve Jobs and Edwin Land and why Steve Jobs looked up to Edwin Land. They saw the world very much in the same way, although uh, they were in personal style quite different. You know, Land being a creature of the, of the Northeast in the 20s when he was a young man, and Jobs being a product of the post-war Northern California culture, utterly different places. You know, one wore three-piece suits and one most definitely did not. But they both saw invention the same way, that you could really make a, a change in the world by, you know, sort of embracing aspects of human behavior. Land used to write these long essays about, like, the, the, the fact that taking pictures would bring people together at this atavistic level, um, that it contributed to communication worldwide. And I mean, I need not tell you that Steve Jobs in our time used to talk the same way about this as a, an incredibly idealistic movement, the movement that was Silicon Valley and particularly Apple. Um, and they both talked also about their, their, um, their inventions the same way, that they had to be exquisite pieces of industrial design. Land insisted on leather for his camera. He always went to the best industrial designers in the world, Henry Dreyfus and all sorts of people like that to work on his, on his products. Jobs had to have the best designs in the world, as we all know. When they were up against a competitor who they felt was ripping them off, you know, as I said, Land told that story about all we have is our brilliance. You remember that story about Jobs complaining about Microsoft? Microsoft had saying, you know, really the problem with them is they just have no taste. <laughs> it's the same spirit. And in fact, uh, Jobs talked about this a few times. More than once, he went to Cambridge to sort of genuflect at the feet of Dr. Land. They met, they spoke, they understood each other a little bit. Land always said that Jobs was not quite what he had hoped because uh, he said he's not a scientist. He doesn't really know his products, which is technically true, although I think he did all right for himself just the same. They, uh, but they both, you know, they both really, really believed that being a perfect object to hold in the hand mattered uh, when it came to product design. And the SX-70 is this perfect little thing when it folds up with leather and brushed chrome and smooth edges. And it, you know, it feels terrific in your hand and it, it pops up like a little tent when you open it to take your picture. Um, and it, to this day, I mean, I carry one a lot of days and uh, it still delights people in the same way it did when it was introduced in 1972. It pushes that same button of like, of product pleasure that the first time you saw an iPod did. You're like, but that little thing has a thousand songs in it. Come on. And it's a pure little white brick with a single wheel that controls everything, you know, and 
it, it makes you happy in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think I, yeah, I see a lot of those parallels. So taking it in a little bit of a different direction, what were some of the important reasons for, for Polaroid's decline? And, and do you think there was things that could have been done differently to avoid sort of the, the, the decline in the, the later years? Or, or was, it, was it inevitable with the, the digital future? Yeah, well, as, as we discussed earlier, I don't want, you know, not to repeat myself, but the, the, um, the internal desire of the company to keep film sales up ultimately was most of the cause of the problem. And if they had had the right person to say, all that's going to go away, we have to be something else now. They had a couple of options. One was that they had a, some patents and a, an early sort of, not exactly prototype, but they had, they had a, a sort of proto-production line to make inject printers back when they were very new. Polaroid could have been what Hewlett-Packard became in that space. And that business model works for them because it's very much the same one. The inkjet printer is fairly cheap. The ink cartridge costs a fortune and you keep buying them forever. It's very much like the film and camera situation that they had been in for all those years. And, you know, your printer is kind of, I mean, it's a picture-on-the-spot kind of technology. You know, it's not wildly different and would not have been wildly different from the instant photography business. Uh, but they got scared of that, too. They had some ideas about print quality and how fine the dots were, and that you know they got hung up on some like uh, aesthetic stuff that they shouldn't have. And then they also could have just disappeared into the industrial world and been the makers of the sensor in the back of your Nikon. But they said, well, we're not an electronics company. We don't really feel our expertise lies there. And it may be true, it may not be true. But in both cases, they decided to step back from their best shots at a future. Was it inevitable? You can't say, because if the right person had been in charge and made some leap in the late 80s, it might have worked out. But as it turns out, all the digital camera makers, Sony, Nikon, Canon, a few others, got Minolta, got way ahead of them. And they could never catch up after a certain point. So even though the final chapter is titled Going Dark, uh, you know, the Polaroid brand, there's still hopefully some brightness there. Uh, I know that it's gone through several transitions during the last couple decades. And I'm wondering who currently owns the brand and is there anything of the original company's culture or spirit, you know, left in the current entity? After the um, collapse, the company went bankrupt in 2001, went bankrupt again in 2008. In between there, they had three different CEOs. They were sold a couple of times. Uh, you know, they... they um, they went through a real, real sort of mess. At the end, they quit making film, and the name was sold in, out of bankruptcy the second time to a company that basically treated it as a licensing operation. They put their name on um, you know, inexpensive TVs from, from China and a lot of stuff like that. You used to see random things like you know, other people's digital cameras that said Polaroid on the front. I once saw a Polaroid yoga mat for sale. They had licensed it even for that. I mean, just junk everywhere. That was followed, or rather ran in parallel with a little company called The Impossible Project, which had formed out of the sort of wreckage of Polaroid when they stopped making film. Two guys in the Netherlands bought the very last Polaroid film factory, the one that had been making film for Europe. And they decided to start to get going, start going again. And it turned out to be a murderously difficult task because all the supply lines had been left to die. So all those weird chemicals that Polaroid was the only customer for that went into its negative, that went into various of its components, were out of production. And they had to reformulate it. And in some cases, they could not start up production again because they couldn't order, you know, in the um, million-gallon lots that Polaroid had. And in some cases they had had environmental problems that had been grandfathered in as long as they were still in production. But as soon as those lines went dead, you couldn't get that stuff anymore. So they had to come up with chemical workarounds on top of everything else. And they started making film again in, I think, 2011, and it was awful on the first pass. It barely worked. In some cases, it lasted two weeks after you took your picture, and then it rotted, basically. It would, all turn, it would, turn, it would turn brownish green and then crumble. And you had to, it was hard to shoot. You had to sort of cover the, picture as soon as it popped out of the camera. It was this weird, 
and those early pictures made by Impossible were sepia and white again, like the, the very earliest Polaroid pictures. It was sort of this weird echo of the product development from the first time around. It ultimately ended up getting better and better and better. It took years. But the Impossible Project, by about 2016 or so, was an actual working company that made a usable film. And then the craziest thing happened, which is that the parent of Impossible bought the empty carcass of Polaroid. And they were able to apply the name Polaroid to this Impossible film, which was continuing to improve. So around 2017, 18, Impossible became Polaroid again. The minnow had swallowed the whale. And it now is a company that they're not inventing new products. They are very much just serving the legacy customer. But they had, in fact, introduced a new Polaroid camera that takes the old film. So you can buy one that isn't 40 years old, which is useful because some of the old ones are starting to get, you know, a little dodgy with age. It also gets into the desire of young people to shoot this stuff without dealing with a lot of vintage camera, you know, fussing, because instant photography has grown extremely popular among teenagers. The other, the other maker of instant cameras is Fujifilm of Japan. And they're little, they make a little sort of chubby uh, instant camera, you know, sort of bright colors and, and very small film format size. And it, I'm told it is the best-selling camera in the world right now. Wow, that's really interesting. I'm thinking about the book as a whole. And if there's anything that we missed, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about instant? Well, I would say that the, the, um, the, the real magic of instant photography is a little hard to get your head around. Why would anyone want to spend a couple of bucks to make a picture that you get only one copy of when you have a camera on your phone that is far better, quote unquote better, and it makes a picture that costs you nothing, and it makes a picture that you can sling around the world in a second? The answer is, I guess, a little hard to get your head around to, but it's that this, this very peculiar medium gets its hooks into you in a way that's a little hard to understand. It's that thing Land wrote about where it's sort of atavistic. It takes place at a sort of basal level. When you take a Polaroid picture, there's two things that are special about it. One is that it's an object. It's not just a bunch of ones and zeros. It's a physical thing in the world, and it is attached to the moment where you took it. You have this thing that was in the room. If you took a picture of the president, you have in your hand a picture that the president picked up and looked at while it was developing. That is kind of bewitching in its own way. And the second thing is you have on your phone probably 10,000 pictures. That doesn't happen with instant photography because you're much more careful. You slow down and shoot fewer of them because they cost you. And so what happens is you tend to keep the good ones more and you like you stick it on the fridge in a way you don't with your uh, camera phone pictures. So what happens is like they, they sort of make their way into your life in a somewhat stickier way, for lack of a better term. You know, they, they, you pay attention to them more. I can't tell you how many times I've done this. I've taken a picture of somebody at a party and I hand it to them. And I run into them five, seven years later and they say, oh, I remember you because you took that picture of me or often my kid and I stuck it on the fridge and it's still there. That doesn't really happen in the same way unless your digital picture goes viral. And it is a little bit mystical why <laughs> but it absolutely works that's really interesting you know on on behalf of the three of us and all of our listeners i really want to thank you so much for coming on the show today to tell us about instant and i'm also wondering if there's anything else that you'd like to plug today oh i am happy to plug my my more recent book yes thank you for asking um my last book came out in 2018 uh it is a biography it's not a tech story. It's a biography of the great New York photographer Ouija, a man named Arthur Fellig, who was operated under the name Ouija, taking pictures throughout the New York City night for the uh, newspapers. He was the most uh, celebrated chronicler of the New York sort of underworld. If you've ever seen a tabloid picture of a dead gangster lying in the middle of the street with a gun next to him and his hat knocked off, it is probably a Ouija photograph. Uh, so I got to spend a few years uh, living with him in my head. And I, given that I am a New Yorker, it was, um, it was delicious, if a little bloody. 
<laughs> and uh, it, it uh, as I said, it, it came out in 2018 and in paperback the next year, and it's still around. That's awesome. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was fun. Thanks for letting me run with it. All right. So, Kevin, you actually picked our book for next month. Can you tell us all a little bit about it? Sure. Our next book is going to be The Hard Thing About Hard Things, Building a Business When There Are No Easy Answers. It's from 2014. And the book's author, Ben Horowitz, is co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz and one of Silicon Valley's most respected entrepreneurs. The book contains his advice on building and running a startup, stories of triumphs and tragedies like firing a friend, and guidance around the ideal exit. Awesome. I'm looking forward to reading that. Is there anything that all of you want to plug and how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Hudak's Basement. And I'm on Twitter at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. I also want to mention our guest this month is available on Twitter at HeyBonanos, H-E-Y-B-O-N-A-N-O-S. And also on Instagram at PolaroidLand. That's all one word, Polaroid land. Thanks so much for listening this month. We really enjoyed having Chris on the show. Thanks again to him for his time. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your podcast player of choice, and we'll see you next month.